The title of this morning's message is Imperishable Glory Part 2. Imperishable Glory Part 2. It's uh, the 4th of July today as Pastor Albert opened us up and as, as, as Pastor Terrence uh, prayed for and re- reminded us of as well. And again, this is the 245th anniversary of America's independence from England. And uh, as we celebrate our earthly citizenship, this in this earthly nation, we're reminded that we are really in, uh, part of an imperishable kingdom, which I think is more important now than ever. Right now, God has still given us the gift of the freedom of religion, for now, for the most part. But as we see where America is headed, and we're, as, we, as we look at a nation like England, and as we look at other post-Christian nations, Christians that were once, uh, nations that were once kind of Judeo-Christian in value, but are, are, are not friendly to Christianity because late modernity has taken over the culture. We're kind of reminded how important it is for us now more than ever to be reminded of our citizenship in heaven. That if you didn't think you were a missionary, today we are missionaries to America. God in His divine sovereignty has called us with the blessing to be in this nation. This nation where churches are able to preach the gospel and able to practice our membership and able to plant churches. And there's going to be a day where our children might become like missionaries in our very own nation. And so the idea of preaching the gospel in our homes and preaching the gospel in our, in our classrooms and teaching Christian worldview is more important now than ever. But the heavenly citizenship, the kingdom of God theme, the idea that we're kingdom ambassadors really ties into our passage this morning where we're going to talk about and begin looking at, at this imperishable kingdom once again. We talked about it a little bit last week about the kingdom of God and today we're, we're going to talk about other aspects of the future resurrection. There is a future kingdom. God's kingdom is already and not not yet. God's kingdom is already here in the sense of a spiritual sense. The church of God represents a spiritual representation right now of an imperfect kingdom of God. When you look at this world, and I just alluded to this this movement towards post-modernity, late modernity in a post-Christian culture, it doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is, is here. If we believe in the victory of Christ, it certainly doesn't feel like Christ is victorious. Yet we know that Christ is victorious because people continue to be saved. And churches continue to be planted. And people continue to move. And and even in places like East Asia where the church is being persecuted, churches are growing. The kingdom is very much alive in a spiritual sense. But there will be a day where Christ returns. And on that day, there will be a physical aspect to a real kingdom. But those who exist in that kingdom will do so in resurrected bodies. That's what this passage is teaching us. So there's four points, because this is the 4th of July. Happy July 4th, there's four points, not three. Okay, four points this morning. Point number one is the kingdom requirement of future resurrection. The kingdom requirement of future resurrection. If you have God's word, turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verse 50, where we see this first point. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, says this, 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here we see the kingdom requirement of future resurrection. If you desire to enter God's eternal kingdom, you can only enter with a resurrected body. God's kingdom, as I mentioned, is already and not yet, but the already part requires a present investment. When you invest in spiritual work, when you invest in the preaching of the gospel and mission work, when you invest in discipling your children, discipling individuals, when you invest in things of an imperishable nature, it will lead to eternal fruits. But when we invest in things that are perishable, it will not last. It cannot even enter the kingdom of God. It will not enter, right? And so the language of inheriting the kingdom of God is a Jewish phrase. It means to possess or, or to acquire God's kingdom. Just like when you look at it in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Old Testament, where consistently you see this idea of we are going to enter and possess the land that God promised to us. We are going to acquire the land that God promised to us. In the same way, you think of the kingdom of God, that we are going to possess the kingdom that is promised to us. The imperishable kingdom, we are going to possess it. We are going to live in that kingdom. We're going to be part of that kingdom. It's a Jewish phrase, but now it's put into New Testament context. And there's a difference between the Old Testament promised land versus the New Testament kingdom is that flesh and blood cannot possess it. It cannot inherit what was promised to us. It means you can't enter it. Now, Philippians chapter 3 Verse 20, Philippians was written by the same author as 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul. And Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that, enable, that enables even uh, Him even to subject all things to Himself. Right? And so something that helps you to understand Philippians 3.20 is that Paul had Roman citizenship. You remember what was different between Paul and other apostles? That Paul had Roman citizenship, so they couldn't crucify him. In fact, he had to go through a trial. He was, a fair trial was promised to him because he had Roman citizenship. So you saw a man who used his Roman citizenship for the sake of the gospel, yet he is very clear, he says, that, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. I think what we learn from Paul is this understanding that there is a privilege of having American citizenship. Anybody who comes from a nation that does not have democracy, you, you, you know for certain there is a benefit from being able to attend church today. Right? To be able to celebrate a certain sense, a large sense of freedom. There are advantages that we have right now that we need to take advantage of. But just like Paul, understanding his Roman citizenship, stewarding it for the gospel, he knew that ultimately he was willing to die for Christ because he knew 
that, was, that his ultimate citizenship was in heaven where he awaits the saviors. So now you see a similar context to 1 Corinthians 15, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So in Philippians 3.20, you see the same idea of receiving the resurrected body. There will, there's, there, there's this transformation process that happens. In fact, it's not a process, you'll see. It happens in a twinkling of an eye. It just happens in an instant where your body changes from this physical, perishable body into this glorious and perishable body. And it says by, in Philippians 3.20, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Right? So it's talking about kingdom language, what we talked about last week, where Christ will subject all things to himself. So that's point number one. Point number one is the kingdom requirement of future resurrection. In other words, if you don't have a resurrected body, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And if you don't have spiritual resurrection as a down payment, you will not enter the kingdom of God. This leads us to point number two. Point number two is when will this happen? When will we receive our resurrected bodies? When will we enter that future kingdom? And point number two is the timing of future resurrection. So we saw first the kingdom requirement of future resurrection. Point number two is the timing of future resurrection. We see this in verses 51 and 52 of 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll look with me now where we see this, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51, it says, behold, which means to look. It's different from listen. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You shall not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be, all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. At the trumpet sound, his glory will resound. His enemies fall down. The saints will gather around. Teaching theology to youth, right? When will the saints be gathered? When? What is the meaning of the trumpet? It's the second coming of Christ will be signaled by the trumpet call. Believers will receive resurrected bodies when Christ returns. Now, when Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery, every time you see mystery used by Paul, it's always talking about something regarding the plan of God that at one time it was hidden, but now it's revealed to the saints. And so what he's talking about here in the same context is, is this idea of dying and receiving a resurrected body. It was a plan that was hidden, this second coming of Christ, the timing of it. It was a plan that was hidden, but it's now will be revealed. Now, nobody knows the exact time and date of when Christ will return, but we know that it's going, to be hap- it's going to happen. It's part of the mystery that's been revealed. And the beautiful thing when it says, we shall not all sleep, that's talking about death. That for the believer, when you die, it's just like you've fallen asleep because, God, because Christ will call us to rise from the grave, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall, we shall arise So the second coming of Christ, something that we understand is that in the course of human history, the second coming of Christ is going to break into history, which means as saints of God, we must always be living with the anticipation that Christ's 
can return at any moment in human history because the way that Paul writes it is that in, in any moment, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in the course of time, Christ is going to return. His second coming is going to break into human history. And before you know it, you are going to be transformed. The twinkling of an eye, now different pastors will, will teach different things. One pastor will say it's a wink. Um, John MacArthur has said it's not a blink of an eye. It's, it's the, the idea of twinkling is when light, a flash of light bounces off your eye. It's that quick, like light bouncing off your eye. So, so there's no process. There's no evolutionary process of your body transforming into the resurrected body. It, so if you were alive, walking around, it's, it's that quick. Flash of, an eye, flash of light on your eye, boom. You're all of a sudden in this resurrected body. If you're dead in the grave, ashes, decayed, or you've been cremated, ashes spread everywhere, that quickly, boom, resurrected body. So when we die, what happens as believers is that unlike the Catholic Church, we don't believe in any purgatory or soul sleep. We believe that when believers die, your soul is immediately united with Christ in heaven. And we don't receive resurrected bodies until he returns. When he returns, the dead in Christ, those in the grave, will rise first and they will meet Christ in the air and receive resurrected bodies. And then those who are alive will then also receive resurrected bodies. So we see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, where the same idea of a, of a trumpet is is named and the, the description is given. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me briefly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15 to 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. A little bit of context is in the 1 Thessalonians 4, the people were concerned about, about what about those who have, have died? What about those who have died? Are they going to miss the second coming? And Paul teaches that no, whether you're alive at the time of the second coming or whether you're dead, you're going to receive resurrected bodies. So with that context, look at verse 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. There's that last trumpet. That trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another with, with these words. So whether you're living at the time when Christ returns, your body will immediately be changed. Or if you're dead, you will receive the resurrected body. And then you, we, will be, we will meet Christ in the air. Right? The last trumpet is a signal for the dead. It's like calling the dead to life. When you think of this idea of the trumpet in the Old Testament, sometimes it's a battle trumpet. Sometimes it's a victory trumpet. I think this context shows more of the signal of victory. The, the second coming of Christ will be a day of victory. It will be a day of victory for the Lord where sin will be defeated, but 
the signal of that is the death, physical body, physical death representing by, by your physical body dying, that will be permanently eliminated. It's victory over sin and death signaled by this trumpet call where we receive resurrected bodies. And this leads us then, this idea of victory leads us to point number three. Point number three is the victory of future resurrection. So we've seen the kingdom requirements of future resurrection. Point number two, the timing of future resurrection. Point number three, the victory of future resurrection. We see this in verses 53 to 57. And there's some powerful worship songs that have echoed these verses. So in verses 53 to 57, it says this. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, For this perishable body must put on an imperishable, and this mortal body, mortal meaning the body dies. Wow, fireworks in the morning. Let's go city of industry. You know, it's illegal in Walnut, right? <laughs> For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written. And this is, you, you see this in some of the worship songs. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 55 is almost like taunting death. Death, death that plagues everyone. Where's your victory over the physical body? O death, where's your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the victory of the future resurrection. Verse 53 and the first part of this, uh, verse 54, repeats this similar teaching of perishable versus imperishable. Last week, I, I kept using the word decay, decay. Uh, even though your bodies are still alive, this idea of perishable and imperishable, when you look at the original languages, it does, it does carry this idea of decay. So if you think of muscle decay, tooth decay, right, our, our bones decaying over time, your body is slowly decaying. It is slowly decaying. That's what it means that, that our bodies are perishable. Your bodies will perish but what is being renewed day after day is the spiritual. It is the inner being, the inward person that's being renewed. Now, something that's powerful is that Paul is quoting when he says, it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? He's quoting Hosea chapter 13, Hosea 13. And when you look at Hosea in its original context, you'll notice that it's a warning of judgment. That's very interesting. It's a warning of judgment. Now, Paul, why would you quote something in the context of judgment when 1 Corinthians 15 is supposed to be giving hope and encouragement and exhortation? Well, God's in Hosea, Israel is being warned for their idolatry and their arrogance. They've turned away from God, yet in the midst of this judgment, God promises redemption. So in the midst of God's judgment, so now, now, now you go back and you look at 1 Corinthians 15. Death is a judgment. Death came as part of the result of sin. And anyone who is 
under sin, under the power of the law, they're judged. It's a context of judgment. And even when Jesus returns, it's judgment on those who do not believe, those who have not given themselves over to the Lord, those who haven't trusted in Christ. It's judgment. But in the moment of judgment, it's also a moment of victory for the saints. Victory of the people who have trusted in Christ. So in the context where the entire world is going to face the judgment of the second coming, it is the believer receiving the resurrected body that says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but there's victory over sin. And the power of sin is the law. The law tells us that for the wages of sin is death. And all who violate the law are guilty of condemnation. The law is good, but the law reminds us of God's judgment. But through Christ, we overcome that power of sin, which is the law. And that's why Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I think we all agree that death is like a sting to all of us. Death is like a sting. We can't ignore death. Each and every day, as you get older, you begin to see your body tell you that death is coming. It might be 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, but it's coming. Death is something that we also can't control. It can happen suddenly. Death could happen outside of our control, or it could be a a drawn-out process. Death is coming. That's why it's like a sting. When you get stung by a hornet, and the poison spreads, and it's painful, and you're afraid of it. But what happens with this world, and I want to speak to you pastorally, is that people try to numb that sting. They know that death is coming, but how do they try to numb that sting? Whether it's cosmetics, whether it's, it's material wealth, whether it's pleasure or money, just saying, how can I enjoy this perishable life for as long as I can? How can I stop the process of decay? How can I stop death? And we as Christians know you can't stop death. Death is like a sting. You can't numb death. You can only reach and invest in what is imperishable. The other way that death is like a sting to us is that even if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you can rejoice that when you die, you will be with Christ. For many of your loved ones, it's a sting. Because even if they're believers, they feel the pain of loss, which is reasonable, which is normal. There's a process of a healthy mourning and processing. Because when you lose someone's, someone that you love, even though mentally you're like, yeah, they're in heaven, in your heart, there's seasons where you mourn. And eventually you you heal and you move forward, but every time it's that person's birthday or maybe an anniversary or maybe Father's Day or Mother's Day, you remember for a little bit. There's moments of joy. Your loved one is with Christ. But there's also moments of sadness where you're like, oh, Mother's Day is different without Mom here. Father's Day is different without Papa here. But you know what is even more heartbreaking? When you mourn your loved ones knowing that they are in eternal judgment. 
where they're not with Christ, where their body will forever perish. And when they are raised, they won't be raised into the imperishable resurrected body, but they will be raised unto eternal judgment. Once again, this fuels us that not everybody has victory over death. Not everybody is able to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the person without Jesus, it's, oh, death has victory over me. This is it. I'm going to numb myself and try to grab everything I can from this world. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I'm going to grab everything I can because when I die, it's over. That is a sad life. Oh, death, where's your sting? I know that that sting is there. I'm just going to keep numbing it and numbing it and numbing it. Eventually, the poison's going to spread and it's going to kill you. But the hope comes for the believer. So this should fuel us, that the future resurrection should fuel us to remain steadfast in the work of mission, evangelism, and disciple-making, and training people's minds and hearts to point people towards Christ. Remember that we cannot convert people. We don't have that power. We need to pray for the miracle conversion to happen in the hearts of the unbeliever. But we got to do our part, trust in the Spirit to guide us. And that leads to point number four. Point number four is the present application of future resurrection. So we've seen the kingdom requirement of future resurrection. Point number one, we've seen point number two, the timing of future resurrection. Point number three, the victory of future resurrection. Finally, point number four, the present application of future resurrection. And that present application talks about the steadfast, immovable faith that leads to an abounding work of God's mission and his disciple-making. Look at verse 58. Verse 58 of our passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of everything that Paul's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, because the resurrection is our hope, and without it we have no hope, because of that, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not just talking to pastors and ministers and missionaries. He's saying, beloved brothers, brethren, church, Christians, we are all called to be everyday missionaries. Beloved brethren, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, beloved, all of us, our labor, if it is invested in the imperishable, it will not perish. That's what he's saying. It is not in vain. Because of the resurrection. Now, Paul concludes this chapter with a therefore. It points towards application, implication. Now, this word steadfast, it paints this picture of moving forward. When you think of steadfast, I'm going to stay in the penalty box, okay? But when, when you're moving forward, it's steadfast. Steadfast is not you're running really fast. <sighs> Tired, can't run anymore. It's not steadfast. Steadfast is not, I'm just going to stay here, stand fast. <laughs> it's not steadfast either. Steadfast is, there's trials, there's challenges, but you're slowly at a steady pace moving forward. The wind's blowing at you, storm is coming, rain's coming, steadfast. Steadfast, moving forward. 
That's the picture of faith. That's the picture because of the resurrection, because of the victory that's promised, because we are living in perishable bodies, but the imperishable is coming. It's promised to us. We labor in vain. We labor steadfast. Don't give up. Don't burn out. Don't, dis- don't be disqualified from the race of doing the Lord's work or following Christ or fighting for Christ or discipling people or trusting when you disciple your children and it's hard or you try to pray for the miracle of your loved one or your parents being converted and you're like, ah, I'm just going to give up. Steadfast, steadfast. Or, or the post-Christian culture starts coming in and, and you're like, man, this, this world, this liberalism, you know, we're, we're really doomed. We can, no, no, steadfast. Slow, you might not see results overnight, you just steadfast. And then it says immovable. So how do you steadfast and immovable? The picture of immovable is, means you can't be knocked over. That's the idea of the house that's built on the rock, that when the trials of life come, when the storms come and the winds blow, you're, you're, you're founded on Christ. Your foundation is firm. You won't be blown over. So you're steadfast and immovable. In what? In the resurrection, in the resurrected Christ. This is important because we have to know where we're headed. And if we know where we're headed, then we can continue to do the work. Otherwise, if you don't know where you're headed, your labor can be in vain. You see what I'm saying? Is that if you invest in something that's not certain and the the stock market crashes, it can be that all of your investment was in vain. But when you're investing in the gospel work, and if you're certain about the resurrection, then none of your work is in vain. Remain steadfast, remain immovable because of the resurrection, knowing that in Christ your labor is not in vain. This idea of always abounding, when you look up that word, it means to overflow. Meaning whatever we do for the flesh, it's dying. So instead, overflow with investing in what is imperishable, which is the kingdom of God, kingdom investments. Invest in people and pray for the miracle of the Lord to convert people. And if we do that, then our labor is not in vain. The big idea of this morning's message is remain steadfast in the victorious person and work of Christ because when He returns, we will enter an imperishable kingdom with imperishable bodies. Remain steadfast in the victorious person and work of Christ because when he returns, we will enter an imperishable kingdom with imperishable bodies. Now, what does that work look like? He talks about knowing that in the Lord your labor is in vain. What if, what if you're not called to go international missions? Or what if you're in the secular workplace and you're trying your best just not to get canceled, but trying to maintain your faith? What if you've you're, you got so many kids at home and you're trying your best just to disciple them? Right, besides church work, and what does that look like? Now, I'm not assigned to preach all of 1 Corinthians 16. Pastor Albert's going to take that all next week. But I just want to give you application. Go to chapter 16, look at verse 1. Paul, you just talked about the work of the Lord. What does it look like? Give me some application, Paul. Paul's like, I'm going to give it to you. And he hits us in the pocketbook. Look what he says. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Okay, you're talking about the work of investment. Yes, we know there's disciple making. But how else do you always abound and overflow 
in laboring, knowing that it's not in vain. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. But when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul's saying, I'm going to come. And whatever the Lord allows you to give, there are poor saints. There are churches in need in Jerusalem. And I'm collecting from you Gentile churches with resources. And so when I come to Corinth, or I send a messenger, whatever you give, I'm going to bring it and deliver it. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Right? So he's talking about giving as another way. But what else is he talking about? What else is he talking about? Go to verse 10. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. So take care of Timothy, the servant of the Lord, for he is doing the work of the Lord. So Paul just said, the work of the Lord. That is, what does it look like? What's, give me some application. He says, well, read the Bible further and you'll see application. For he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. And then he keeps going and going and going, right? And he goes on. He talks about, he talks about the fellow workers and laborings. My point is, he's talking about how believers, even if you're not called to do traditional mission work, or pastoral work, he says, financially, you can invest. And this goes back once again to, I think, what speaks to our generation and our culture is that it's so easily to financially... Now, I'm going to talk about money a little bit. It says it right here. It's in the text. It's so easy to invest in, with our money in what is perishable. And it's okay to invest our money because if God multiplies it, we can use it for his kingdom. But if we're investing money just to preserve and to enjoy what is perishable as long as we can, then that's exactly what Paul's warning against. He said, death is coming. It can happen any moment outside of your control. It's like a sting. Don't try to numb it with what is perishable. Seek what is imperishable. Yeah, save up some money for yourself. Take care of yourself. But give to the Lord your time. So if you don't have money, your time, your talents, your treasure. How can you be used by God so that we can apply 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, however the Lord leads you, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, your investment, your ministry, your disciple-making it's not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because Christ is our hope in life and death. Because Christ is resurrected, all things for the resurrected Christ are not in vain. Let me pray for us. Father, we see in this text the conclusion to this wonderful chapter on the resurrection. Father, you have gave us the down payment through the Holy Spirit of what is imperishable, in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to take 
what we believe spiritually, the Word of God that's implanted into us, and make that Word take on flesh in our deeds, our actions, our attitudes. Father, this is a beloved church with faithful servants. Father, I pray that you would use all of us. Humble us before you. Help us, Lord, to remain steadfast, immovable in the doctrine of the resurrection and in the resurrected person of Christ. Help us then, Lord, to do the work that you've called us to, each of us, in a different context with different resources. Use us mightily so that we would be an impact in this world for your imperishable kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.